Well, last week we started on the New Testament doctrine of the atonement. Um, I gave you a handout last week, and some people seemed pleased with that, so I gave you another one this week. Uh, what were some words you remember from last week regarding the atonement? Ransom? Ransom? Okay. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be ransomed? Does it mean that Jesus uh, made a payment to God or to the devil? or What was the ransom price? Jesus' life. Yeah, amen. And what does the word ransom mean? Yeah, the price of release. So when we're doc- talking about ransom in the New Testament sense, not in, uh, you know, pirates took someone captive and now you have to pay the money, the gold to get them released kind of sense. But uh, in this kind of sense, we're not talking about a literal payment to somebody or something, uh, but it did cost Christ's life uh, to release us, to deliver us. From our sins, from the condemnation and the practice of our sins. So what, what else do you remember from last week? What's some other words that stuck out to you? Mediator. Okay, what does that mean? Go between Okay, okay, go between or a bridge. So what what is a mediator? Who is he? Who is he mediating for? John. For the sinner back to God. So he's coming between two parties that have a dispute, a problem, and trying to solve that problem. And the two parties are God and the sinner. And so he provides a way for the sinner to be back in uh, in agreement or to be back, to not be an enemy of God any longer. To be a friend of God now. Okay, one more. Tell me one more. Remember, try to, try to remember what it talks about without looking at your sheet. Uh, give me one more word. Josh? Redemption, okay. What does that mean? Okay, set free to ransom. Okay. To set free from what? Sin, okay. What is uh what does propitiation mean? Does it mean A that God poured out his wrath on Jesus? Does it mean B that God uh that Jesus made God nice again so he could like us? Or C does it mean that uh uh, that it was the way that God chose to provide to take our sins away. See, yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people think A or B is true. The word impute, does it mean transfer? Does the word impute mean transfer? No, what, is it, what does it mean? Consider as, to reckon as, uh, to not hold against any longer, if you put the word not in front of it, not consider as a sinner any longer, which is what Romans 4 talks about. Romans 4, just the, the classic passage to understand what the word impute means, which is the Greek word legizomai. Uh, you really want to understand what that means, just read through Romans 4. Anytime you see the word account or impute, you know it's that word and that passion. It, it appears, let's see, 4, 8, 11 times in, the, in Romans chapter 4. So, Okay, and forgiveness. What does forgiveness mean?
not hold them against them anymore. Right, that's right. So it doesn't mean a sudden's toss into the sea of forgetfulness as if God uh, has a bad memory now. He's no longer omniscient. And you know more than he does. I remember my past sins. So if God doesn't remember, then I'm, I know more than he does now, at least in certain things. So, okay, what's that, bro? I'm sorry, to pardon them. Yeah, to pardon them. That's right. That'd be a synonym of forgiveness. Okay, and this week we're going to finish up the different words we have in the New Testament Doctrine of Atonement. Um, and uh, once we do that, we're going to talk about curse a little bit and what it means to be a curse. And then something that's not on your notes, you can like maybe take notes in the back of your paper if you want to, is going to be when we talk about Hebrews and why the New Covenant, why the Old Covenant was not sufficient in God's eyes and why we had to have a New Covenant. So let's look, talk about the first word there is purge. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And the Greek word is katharismos. Katharismos. It's a noun. It means to translate as purged and cleansed. We're talking about the past tense. And Hebrews 1 and verse 3, talking about Jesus now, it says, Who, that's Jesus, being the brightness of God the Father's glory, an express image of God the Father's person, and upholding things by the word of his power, when he, Jesus, had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, to purge means to cleanse from inward pollution. To cleanse from inward pollution. Uh, this word is often used at times throughout the scriptures. I didn't give any examples of this, but uh, to mean like a, uh, a cleansing physically, like if you were to talk about a, a leper who was cleansed, who Jesus had healed, he would go present himself to the, uh, to the, the people who were the, the priests, uh, it would use the same word there, but obviously in this sense it's referring to a cleansing from inward pollution, where Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, cleanse the inward of the cup first, not the outward of the cup. He's taught the same Greek word being used here. So we're talking about inward pollution. So Jesus, when he, he, he purges us, he cleanses us from all the inward pollution of our sins, which would include our heart, it would include our conscience. Okay? This is something supernatural, uh, that, you know, man cannot do himself. You, you can't make your conscience go back to its former state. You know, I, I remember when I, my conscience was clean and pure. I was about 12, 13 years old. I told myself, you know, a lot of my friends were getting involved. I said, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fornicate. I'm never gonna do that. And after time went by, I began to lust and, uh, began to engage in things like that. And my conscience began to become seared and corrupted. And the things that my conscience used to tell me, used to make me feel bad about, it no longer did. But when I became a Christian, it went back to the beginning. My conscience was cleansed again. And not only was my conscience cleansed again, but now according to the scriptures, I received the Holy Spirit, which I like to say is kind of like a super conscience. Okay, The Holy Spirit is like a super conscience to be living inside of you, uh, to have God living inside of you, uh, telling you and directing you and guiding you and convicting you uh, when it's needed and to push you in a certain direction when it's needed. So there's an inward cleansing of your heart, of your mind, uh, of your conscience. And then Second Peter one nine. Second 
Why don't we just start in verse 5 to get the context here. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So, we, when we get come to Christ, we are cleansed of our old sins. Of course, now, for you to be cleansed of a certain sin, it must be old. You can't presently be involved in it for you to be cleansed of it. Uh, you can't plan to be involved in something be, uh, and be cleansed of it. And your future sins aren't cleansed ahead of time. Your old sins are cleansed. That's a good question to ask yourself. Um, these things that verses 5 through 8 are talking about, or verses 5 through 7 are talking about, are you growing in these things? Are you growing in diligence and faith and virtue and knowledge? Are you growing in self-control and perseverance? You know, are, are you still quick to get angry at your wife and children, or do you have self-control? Um, are, you, are you gaining in perseverance, or are you growing tired of dealing with this world and the way they deal with you? Or is your perseverance growing? Are you growing in godliness? You know, as God reveals things to you, are you continuing to submit your life to Him? Uh, is your, are you growing in brotherly kindness? You know, with your brothers being patient with them. Or are you becoming impatient with them? Uh, are you growing in love? Uh, for if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you lack these things, you are short-sighted even to blindness, and you have forgotten that you were cleansed of your old sins. So you should, you should, the fact that you've been cleansed of your old sins should, really should cause you to grow in these things. Out of uh, gratefulness to God for his cleansing of your old sins. And of course, we know the blood of Jesus Christ is the foundation, the life of Christ given on the cross, the foundation of us being cleansed of our old sins. Okay, let's move to the next uh, word there we have, katharizo, cleanse, Acts chapter 15 and verse 9 is the first word we'll see here. And here we have in Acts 15, to give you a context here, is the, the issue between the Jews and Gentiles, these Jewish people who came from the Jerusalem church were going behind the Apostle Paul and telling the new Gentile believers that they must be circumcised to be saved. Which the believers and James the elder, the half-brother of Jesus, he said, I did not send them to do this, to say these things. And uh, in verse 9 we have Peter talking about um, uh, his encounter with Cornelius. And let's just start in verse 7. He says, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter's saying here that, you know, these Gentiles, they, they hadn't been circumcised, and, and God put his seal of approval upon them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So who are we to say whether well, they're not acceptable to God? 
Who are we to say they're, 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 that's no good? They need to add something to that to be acceptable to God. And notice it says that in verse 9, they were purifying their hearts by faith. That's the word here that we see here for cleanse. Katharizo is translated as purify, as cleanse. Um, and it means to cleanse or purify of sin. Uh, it means to declare clean or to make clean. So katharizo means to cleanse or purify of sin, to declare clean, to make clean. It must be declare clean. Let's face it, we still have, as we've talked about many times so far, we still have sin on our record. So it must be a declaring that we're clean, that making of clean, because those sins are still there. And so, uh, just like forgiveness is not holding them against you, just like impute is not considering you as a sinner, uh, cleansing is the same thing. Uh, now, there is obviously some inward cleansing, like we thought before, of our heart, our mind, our conscience. We're talking about an actuality here. Uh, you're cleansed as if you had never sinned. That's what God's considering you as. And so, but notice they're purified by faith. So there is something that has to be done on our part. At the moment you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're cleansed, you're purified by faith in Jesus Christ. And God proves that he, he has cleansed us by giving us his Holy Spirit. Because will, will the Holy Spirit reside in a filthy temple? No, he will not. He wouldn't do it in the Old Testament, and he won't do it in the New Testament either. Uh, so it has to be cleaned out, cleansed out first, purified first, before he'll come, before he'll come and reside in the temple. Uh, let's go to Ephesians 5.26. And here we have in this scenario, we have uh, this relation between husbands and wives and uh, Christ and the church, and really, marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. And we see in verse 25, it says, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, do you do that, husbands? Do, do you love your wife as, as Christ loved the church? Do you lay your life down for her, um, just as Christ gave himself for the church? It's a very intriguing question to ask yourself. But he gave himself for her for a reason. That he might sanctify and cleanse her. There's the word right there. Cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So the word of God is involved in the cleansing here because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you must hear the word of God and then the faith comes and then by faith your heart is cleansed. Yeah, so there's a, the word of God is involved here. Um, your, your washing of water by the word. So there's, there's a, there's a word of God involved in the cleansing too. Because faith is, uh, the word of God is needed to have faith. And faith is needed to have true cleansing inside. Okay, Titus 2.14. That's why we go into the world to preach the word of God to sinners. That they might be cleansed. And um, some of you may have seen the accounts that me and John gave on Facebook concerning our recent outreach at UT Knoxville. I tell you, it's a lot different there than it was three years ago. Um, besides not having problems with the police, uh, there was a lot of people who seemed really, really under conviction, really humbling themselves. There was one the second day when I just started preaching, didn't have a crowd or anything yet, and he walked by John, got a track from John, they came to me, and he... He's real humble. Look, I had tears in his eyes. Shook my hand. He said, "I want to say sorry for yesterday, and that I met God yesterday." He said. He just kept on walking, and uh, there were many people there 
in those two days who just seemed really humble. This one young man, the first day, his name was James. Uh, he said he grew up in a Christian house, so he said he was a Christian for 14 years. Those are the words that came out of his mouth. I said, well, you know, he kind of looked kind of young to be a Christian for 14 years, maybe 18 years old. I mean, he would have to have become a Christian at four and then just recently departed from the faith. And what he meant by that is that he was raised in a Christian household for his first 14 years of his life, and then he chose not to follow it any longer. And I said, were you ever born again? He said, no. And um, he was really, I mean, he just sat under conviction, like pleaded with him to come to Christ for about 30 minutes. And all the Christians were involved, you know, in, in, who were from the university were pleading with him too to get right with God. And he just didn't, he didn't run away from it. And he sat there and you could tell he was under great conviction. And when he, when I would talk about the grace of, of God through Jesus Christ, a smile would come upon his face and he would just, God was really working in his heart and mind. And this, the second day, I remember this one young man who was around the first day and the second day, almost all day, both times, you know, kind of looked like uh, he had the tie-dye shirts on. He professed to be smoking pot and, you know, he, he just looked uh, like, you know, that kind of stereotype of a person. And uh, his, he said his stepmom was a pastor, and we talked about that a little bit, and he was kind of angry about that. But uh, he, I told him that that wasn't right, of course. And, um, at the, and then the last day, he just was, he came to me before he left, and he was just about to break down crying while I was, while I was preaching to him and sharing with him one-on-one. So the Lord was really working in their hearts and working in their minds uh, to bring about uh, this possible cleansing of their heart and their mind uh, that they no longer have to be sinful and dirty in God's eyes but they can be purified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ now, I'll tell you I, I found the most powerful times the whole two days when I was preaching on Christ I mean I, of course we preached on sin and judgment and hell and we talked about other apologetic things but when I preached about Christ and him crucified I just was, was so mighty and so powerful in their hearts and their minds as they listened uh, Titus 2.14 talking about Jesus who uh, is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, we talked about that last week, redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So, there's not only a redeeming, a delivering from sin, not only the, the practice of sin and the, the punishment of sin, but also a, a cleansing where we're made new, we're made, we're made clean in God's sight again. Uh, we're, we're taken out of the, you know, the picture of the prodigals and taken out of the muck and mire and cleansed and given the robe and, and, and dressed up properly like God wants us to be. Uh, Hebrews 9.15. Here's where we, we get to see you. Let's, let's just start in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, there's a cleansing of your conscience. That actually should say uh, 9.14 on your paper, not 9.15. The cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So there's a cleansing of the conscience, not only of, of our sins, but of dead works. And the dead works he's talking about is the works of the Old Testament. The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, with your these Hebrew believers were considering going back to at that point in time, and therefore rejecting the sacrifice of Christ as the foundation for forgiveness, but going back to the Old Testament sacrifice as a foundation for forgiveness, which was no foundation at all because Christ, the final sacrifice for sins, and we'll see later on as we go through Hebrews towards the end of this teaching that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins anyway. 
And the ironic thing is, shortly after Hebrews was written, AD, uh, this is written in the AD 60, around there, 65 maybe, AD 70, the temple was destroyed. So if someone did go back to it, and then it's destroyed five to ten years later, now they have nothing. Now they have nowhere to turn. And that, that stuff couldn't help them anyway. Uh, let's go to 1 John 1, and verse 7 and 9. Starting in verse 5, it says, This is the message we heard from him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. You see those conditions there, all those conditions they give there? If you walk in darkness... You don't have the thing that verse 7 talks about, having fellowship with other Christians. You don't have the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from all your sin if you're walking in darkness. But if you walk in the light, as he's in the light, um, then then you have fellowship one with another. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? If I'm walking in true light, and you're professing to walk in light, but you're walking actually walking in darkness, do we really have fellowship together? No, we sure don't. Um... And even, you know, if you're saying you're sinning every day, hopefully that's not true. If some people say that, they have no fellowship with true Christians. They don't have the cleansing of Christ's blood. Because repentance is a requirement for you to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, of course, when we say blood, what do we mean now? The life of Jesus Christ. Giving up his life for us. Okay? And then verse, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said the word cleanse there in both those places. And you see, you're always seeing these, these words we went over last week, ago, this week, you see them together a lot of times. Because they're really just synonyms, almost saying the same thing in a different way. That's why you see forgiveness and cleansing in the same spot. Okay? And it says if, and the condition here is if we confess our sins. You know, so if you don't confess your sins, then you don't have what the last part of the verse talks about. And the word confess here is a Greek word homologeo and does not mean simply just tell God your sins. That's a Roman Catholic idea where you go into a booth and you tell this other man your sins and all of a sudden he may give you something you can do, but somehow that forgives you of your sins. It means to agree with God about your sins, to say the same thing about your sins that God says about your sins. That's what confession really means. So really, confession is almost like a synonym for repentance because if God hates sin, you should hate it too. And if you hate it, obviously you're not engaging in it. You're repenting of it. Okay? So there's conditions in both those verses to get cleansing and forgiveness of your sins. But he cleanses for how, how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. You know, people like to bring up verse 8 to say we have to continue to be in sin at all times. But verse 9 says we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. So even if they believe verse 8 is saying you have to always continually be in sin, well, if they confess their sins... They're repenting of it. Aren't they at that moment in time cleansed of all their sins? And aren't they at that moment in time not a sinner and perfect in God's sight? At least, I mean, are you planning to sin the next second as soon as you get done confessing? You know, that's what they would have to say if they really want to hold to what they think verse 8 says. Okay, so we see cleanse and purge. Now let's talk about curse. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to spend a significant amount of time on curse for a little while. Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament as well and talk about what it means. 
Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curses everyone who does not continue, and all things are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. If the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, so we have this curse in here several times throughout here. And the word curse uh, means a curse offering. Or uh, becoming a curse on our behalf. Okay. So he has several quotations from the Old Testament here. In, cha- in verse 10 at the end we have uh, Deuteronomy 27:26. We're not going to turn there, but basically all it's saying is this. If you're going to live by the law, then you will be judged by the law. And the problem with that is this. Once you've broken the law one time, no matter how much you obey the law, it's not going to help you or forgive you or cleanse you of your disobedience. You know, if you go before, just in the earthly sense now, if you go before a judge and you've committed three crimes in the past, and let's say you don't get caught for five years, but the statute of limitations is not up on your crimes, caught, and you stand before a judge, you know, judge, I know I committed those three, those three crimes a long time ago, but since then, look, judge, these last five years, I've done all these good things, I've been obeying the law perfectly these last five years. That judge, if he is just and good, is not going to let that criminal go free just because he or she obeyed the law for five years. He's still under the just condemnation of the law for disobeying it, for breaking it. Okay? So obedience to the law will not make up for disobedience to the law, and obedience to the law will not save you or forgive you or cleanse you or pardon you or redeem you of your disobedience to the law. So that's what Paul, that's what Paul is saying in verse 10, that's what he says in verse 11, that, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by him. And in verse 13, here's the solution. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, let's, that's quoting from Deuteronomy 21. Let's turn there. And let's go back. Anytime you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, make a diligent practice to go back and see what it says in context. You will save yourself from a lot of false doctrine. I reasoned with many Calvinists these last, last week about Romans 9, and uh, they really had not much to say when I brought them to the Old Testament verses. They realized it was not talking about individuals, but about nations. And they were kind of uh, dumbfounded, so to speak. Stumped. We'll praise the Lord. Maybe they're seeing the truth. Okay, Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> I want you to really pay attention to what is, said, what is being said here in verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin <clears throat> deserving of death, and he has put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, they shall surely bury him that day, that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. 
Okay, so what does it mean to be a curse? Well, the first one thing it means is that the person is guilty of a crime. Okay? That's what you put next to number one there. He's guilty of a crime. Uh, number two, that this person is actually the person who committed the sin or the crime. It wasn't someone else who committed it. This person committed it. Number three, this crime was deserving of death. Sure. So one is guilty of a crime. Two, they're actually the person who committed the sin. If you weren't, you'd have no guilt. Uh, number three, deserving of death. Number four, this person is literally accursed of God. That's why they're under the death penalty. That's why their life was taken from them. And for the last one there, the last point, actually this is two more points, okay. Uh, they were put to death, okay, And number six, then they were hung on a tree. Okay? You notice the, or, the chronological order here. A person was dead before they were hung on a tree. So there's not, I don't want you to picture a noose or a hanging as we in American Christianity picture it sometimes. This is someone being put on a tree. You know, whether it's hung from a rope or just simply letting their body hang over a tree limb. But they were already dead. Okay? And it doesn't tell us why they did this. Um, but I would suppose, okay, that the reason why God would do this was to warn others not to go the way this person has gone. To be a warning sign. Not to be like this person is. Okay, because this is what happens to people who do what this person did. And so, it, and they weren't up there for very long. Uh, they were taken down before the before the night passed. Okay? And so this this is where it's quoting, Paul is quoting in Galatians three. And so let's let's see if uh these things are true of Jesus. Okay? You see the, the first question there was Jesus actually guilty of any crimes or did he actually commit any sins? So let's just look at the scriptures, Isaiah fifty three. Let's see what the, I mean. I know obviously we know the answer to that question, but let's see what the scriptures say, so we can have some verses to back it up. Isaiah fifty-three, in verse nine. This is obviously a messianic chapter of Isaiah, and they made Jesus' grave with the wicked, <clears throat> but with the rich at his death, because Jesus had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So. He'd done no violence, no deceit found in his mouth, according to Isaiah 53.9. So I left that space there under that question, so you can just put the scripture references and look up later on for yourself. Uh, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. They might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus knew no sin. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
and verse 21. And then Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he was tempted, but he never gave in to temptation. And then Hebrews 7.26. For such a high priest, talking about Jesus, was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, or innocent, another word for harmless there, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens. So he was holy, he was innocent, he was undefiled, he was separate from sinners. And then we have First uh, Peter two twenty two, which is just quoting from Isaiah fifty three nine, who committed no sin, or partially anyway, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That's First Peter two twenty two. And then in First John three five, it says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him. There is no sin. What's the first thing you, can think of, you should think of when it says that he was manifested to take away our sins? Scapegoat. That's right, the scapegoat. And in him, there is no sin. Just like the scapegoat. There's no sin in the scapegoat, no sin in Jesus. Okay? So, was Jesus actually guilty of any crimes, or did he actually commit any sin? The answer is abundantly no. So, the next question becomes, did he do anything deserving of death? Well, let's get the... Uh, the Sanhedrin's opinion on that first, Matthew 26. <clears throat> and we'll start in verse 64, Matthew 26, 64 through 66. Here, the, here he is under trial, they're questioning him, he's facing the Sanhedrin. And uh, he says, It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will... See the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blasphemy, or his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. So according to them, he was deserving of death. According to them, he had committed sin, the sin of blasphemy. Okay? Let's go to um, John 19.7. And this is the Sanhedrin coming before, or the chief priests and officers coming before Pilate. And verse 5 says, Then Jesus came out after he had been beaten, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So Pilate found no fault in him. But verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So he made himself the Son of God. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God. And that was sin in their eyes, and therefore they believed he ought to die according to the law of Moses. But let's go to uh, Acts chapter 7 and see what Stephen had to say when he's preaching to the Sanhedrin.
So as you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So, according to Stephen, um, well, if, if he was killed justly, put to death justly, because he had broken some law of Moses, he wouldn't be able to call them murderers, would he? But he called them murderers because he was a just one, the just one. And they became the murderers and the betrayers of Jesus, who the prophets told about, and their forefathers killed the prophets as well. And then in Acts 13, 28 and 29. This is Paul talking. He's talking about Jesus now. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So according to the Sanhedrin, according to the wicked rulers of the Jewish people, uh, they thought he did something deserving of death. Now, whether they were actually being honest about that and sincere about that, that's the question. But that's what they said with their mouths. But according to Steve and according to Paul, he had done nothing deserving of death. And of course, Paul and, and Stephen had the Holy Spirit, so we believe them. So he, he, he was, had not committed any actual sin. He committed no actual crime, so he did nothing deserving of death. So was he literally accursed of God? Well, the question becomes, how could he be? If he had committed no sin, no actual sin, therefore he is not guilty of any actual crimes and did nothing deserving of death, how could God curse such a person? You need to take an unjust or unfair God to curse a non-guilty person, to curse someone who had not committed any crimes, So, was he put to death and then hung in a tree? Well, let's think about history for a second here. Was Jesus put to death before he was put on the cross? No, he died on the cross, right? And was the cross a tree? Kind of. I mean, it's made out of trees, but it's not a tree. It doesn't have roots in the ground. It doesn't have branches on it. It's two pieces of wood put together. Okay, so it's very figurative when we're talking about this. So, Jesus, when we're talking about him becoming a curse, um, what does it mean then? We go out to the bottom part for a second. What then? What does it mean? Well, he was treated as if, as if he had committed crimes worthy of death. He was treated as if he had committed crimes worthy of death, because he really hadn't. He was treated as if he was guilty of crimes worthy of death. He was treated as if he was literally accursed of God. And he died out in the open... For all to see, just like the man in Deuteronomy 21, as if he was on a tree like the Old Testament. Remember, he was at the city gates. He would walk by and see. And that was really 
like the whole purpose of the Romans, Roman government doing that. The same reason that in Deuteronomy 21, I think it was, to, to show people don't be like, don't be a criminal, don't be a robber. You know? Don't be that way. So it was all as a substitute for those who had actually committed crimes worthy of death, who were literally guilty before God, and who were literally accursed by God. That's sinners. Sinners are the ones who have committed crimes worthy of death. Sinners are the ones who are actually guilty. Sinners are the ones who are actually accursed by God. And so we're talking about a substitution here. Because Christ did none of those things and was none of those things. So what did Christ really die of? We'll turn to Psalm 22 and verse 14. Christ didn't even die of the crucifixion, which takes much time. You die on, because of a crucifix, you die because of you, you die of suffocation. And that's why, if we were to go through it, that's why they broke the legs of the two robbers, because they wouldn't be able to push up on their legs anymore and, and breathe in. But Psalm 22 and verse 14, this is a messianic psalm. The first, even the first verse is what Christ cried out on the cross. Verse 14 says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. So Christ died of a broken heart. In uh, Psalm 69, in verse 19 through 21, obviously referring to Jesus once again, says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor, and my adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So Christ literally died of a broken heart. And we see this when, you know, the soldiers are going around to break the legs of of uh, the other criminals next to him, and Christ is already dead, so they, they poke him in the side with a spear, and water and blood comes out, which is a sign of heart failure, of heart rupture. The heart itself ruptured. He died of a broken heart because he saw his own creation, you know, the creation who God the Father created him through, rejecting him completely. And so he died of a broken heart. Now, there are scriptures in Acts, the book of Acts, that talk about Christ dying on a tree. Let's go look at those real quick. Acts chapter 5 and verse 30. And this language is used uh, to communicate this idea that Paul talks about in Galatians 3, 10 through 13. And... Um, in verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered after they're put on trial and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. But we know it's symbolic because he didn't really get hung on a tree. Okay? It's, but it's referring to that Deuteronomy 21, 22-23, like we just went over. And then you see it again in Acts 10.39.
This is uh, Peter preaching to Cornelius' household. They said, We are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And then in Acts 13.29, Paul speaking again, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So you, you, know, you see, and the, the last verse besides Acts 13.29 is 1 Peter 2.24. But going back to Deuteronomy again, just for a second here, we see a lot of comparable things here. We see that... Um, he was considered as if he was deserving of death by the Sanhedrin. They thought he committed a sin deserving of death. And he's put to death. He wasn't hung on a little tree, but he was hung outside where everyone could see as if he was on a tree. So people could see, don't be like this guy. That's the, that's the point the Sanhedrin wanted to make. And you even have one of the leaders of Sanhedrin prophesy, it's, it's good for one man to die for the nation. And so, don't be like this man. Or you'll die too. And of course, Christ wasn't left on the cross overnight, was he? And John 19, 30-31, you have the Jewish leaders coming to Pilate to talk about this. That they were a high Sabbath. They didn't want him left, any of, the, any of the criminals left on the cross overnight. That's why they broke their legs. And he was put in a tomb. And he was considered accursed of God. You know, even Isaiah 53 it says they considered him. They considered him smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah fifty-three and verse and in verse four says, "And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted." That's the people's view of him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So when they saw him, they said, "Man, he's smitten by God and afflicted. He's cursed by God." And so his this curse that Christ went through was a substitution for those who really deserve the curse of God. And of course, our curse goes well beyond dying physically. Our curse goes to the eternal. So it wasn't literally on a tree, but that language is used because that's the language the people who knew the Old Testament would have understood. But he was treated just like that criminal was in Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. Now let's, let's go out now go to Hebrews. We're going to stay up for a little while in Hebrews to finish up the teaching today. And the question before ourselves as we're going through Hebrews, why the new covenant? Why? I mean, God set out all these laws in the Old Testament through Moses, all these sacrificial laws. And these notes you can take on the back of the piece of paper if you want. Probably the easiest. My wife told me to bring some pens. Anyone... I was kind of late now. Does anyone need a pen? Anyone need a pen? Need a pen? Okay. Sorry. Kind of slipped my mind. I was trying to help me out. I just forget. Okay, so um, the first thing I want to point out to you, we'll go to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, is that Jesus Christ, who is the high priest of the new covenant, is part of, he is a better priest, and he's part of a better priesthood. That's the first point. Better priest, better priesthood. Okay? So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. See, then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but is all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the old priesthood had priests who were sinners. They had not completely overcame sin, overcome sin. But Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like us, so he could still sympathize with us, but yet he had never sinned, never given in. So we come boldly for help. Oh, Lord, I don't know how to deal with temptation. Please help me deal with this. And he can help us. He can help us because he, he can sympathize. He was tempted like we are. And he overcame every single time. You know, the old, the old saying that we had in, in, when I was in sales, if someone has what you want, you do what they do, you get what they got. You know, if this, this guy was a bad salesman, was never making any money, you didn't want to follow his example. But you had this guy who really knew what he was doing, you wanted to follow his example. So the same thing with Jesus, he's the best example, actually never sinned. So you want what he has, sinlessness, perfection, purity. Do what he do and you'll get what he got. So he's the one who can teach us. He's the one we can learn from. Amen? Uh, Hebrews 7. Note the same point here. Hebrews 7, verses 26 through 28. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, become higher than the heavens. He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. Weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So we have a high priest that has no, has no weaknesses. He never gave in the temptation. And not only that, he does not, because of that, he does not need to offer up uh, sacrifices for himself first. Remember, Leviticus 16, they have told him, what was the first sacrifice for? For the high priest and his family. And Jesus doesn't need to do that. He didn't sin. And so we have a better high priest, a better priesthood. Uh, we have an eternal, the second point is we have an eternal priesthood. Now the priesthood of Levi... And the high priesthood of Aaron, who was a son of Levi, not a direct son, but a descendant of Levi, that was the original priesthood. Uh, but Hebrews 5 and verse 6 and verse 10, Hebrews 5, verses 6 and 10, talk about the order of Melchizedek, which is different than the order of Aaron or Levi. And verse 6 says, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, when the high priest of Aaron would die, did they continue to offer up sacrifices to God after they had died? No, their priesthood ended. But Christ's priesthood is forever. It's eternal. It never ends. And we'll see in a second it have a beginning either. Uh, verse 10. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 6 and verse 20. Where the forerunner, talking about Jesus, has entered for us, Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's continue on in chapter 7 and go through verse 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, that's what Salem is, Jerusalem, king of Salem meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So who is this Melchizedek, man? I mean, he didn't have a father. He didn't have a mother. He didn't have a genealogy. He didn't have beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Let's go back and let's look at what this story is all about in Genesis 14. But the fact that he has no mother or father, I mean, that's that means he can't be of this creation, right? Because everybody who's of this creation has a mother and fa- or father, except for maybe Adam and Eve. Okay, so Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Bread and wine. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And that's basically it. That's the little portion we have, those three verses about Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews, as I believe is Paul, is kind of uh, expounding upon that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But one thing you need to notice here is that, uh, we'll see here in a minute at the end of verse 7, that this was must have been someone great. Not only because he had no mother or father, not because he had no beginning of days or end of life, because he blessed Abraham. At the end of Hebrews 7, it says that the, the, uh, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And he was the father of all the Israelites? Father Abraham. And yet, this guy's blessing Abraham? Shouldn't Abraham be blessing him? This guy's blessing Abraham. And who did, who did the Levites come from? Who, who was their descendant? Abraham. And the Levites came from Abraham eventually. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Levi, right? And so here we have uh, this Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And uh, obviously this is a Christophany. This is Christ before he came in the flesh, which he wouldn't have any physical father. He wouldn't even have a physical mother at that point in time because he hadn't come in the flesh for good like he did when he came in virgin birth. He had no genealogy yet. That wasn't until later on. And so he's Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Levi. And so Hebrews 7, let's read verses 4 through 10 here. Now consider how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. 
But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. And Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, so this is some interesting stuff here. All right, So in the loins of Abraham, uh, and to be very specific, in the, the seed of Abraham, somewhere in there is what's going to become eventually the children of Israel and Levi and all the Levites, because he's the father of them all. Or grandfather, or great, whatever you want to call it, but he's he's the the primary descendant of all of those. So they're they're all going to come from him. And so the Levites, according to the law, received tithings from their brothers. You know, they had no land, they had no inheritance, but they became priests before God, and the, their brothers, all the other tribes of Israel, would give tithes to them. But here we have Abraham, who's the father of all of that, giving tithes to this Melchizedek guy. And what he's saying is, so to speak, the Levites who received tithes from their brothers are now tithing to Melchizedek, which means that the priesthood of Melchizedek is much greater than the priesthood of Levi. Okay? And so Jesus is from that priesthood. He's the one who has no beginning of days nor end of life. He is the Son of God. And he remains a priest continually in that priesthood. Okay, so the first point is a better priesthood, a better high priest, and the second point is an eternal priesthood. Third point, which we just talked about, is that the Levites received tithes from Israel, but Israel figuratively tithed to Melchizedek. Okay, uh, Hebrews 7.23 We see that uh, other priests, as we already talked about, they, other priests, they died stopping their service, but Jesus never stopped his service. He, Hebrews 7.23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So there, there wasn't just one high priest. It didn't stop at Aaron. It continued on to Aaron's descendants and their descendants and their descendants because eventually death stopped them from continuing. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, as he also lives to make intercession for them. There's no other high priest who can be said this can be said of that he continues in an unchangeable priesthood forever. And not only that, he lives to make intercession for you. No other you can't say that about any other high priest. Next, we have it's a one-time sacrifice, not many times sacrifice. You see this in verse 27 of Hebrews 7. Talking about Jesus, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So it was a once, a one-time sacrifice. He doesn't need to do it day in and day out because his one-time sacrifice was good enough for all sins of all time. Uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 25. Not that Jesus, he, should offer himself up often, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of himself. It says, And as a point of man once to die, to die once, but after this judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear sins of many. Those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. That's a one-time sacrifice. Not an every day, not an every year sacrifice. A one-time sacrifice. And then in Hebrews 10, 1 through 3, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then will they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, talking about the Old Testament ones, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was a constant thing. They could not make those who approached perfect, could not take away sins, but it was a reminder of sins every single year to those who brought those things. Every, I mean, think about taking your one of your best goats, one of your best lambs every year in order to offer it for your sins. That's a reminder right there. That's a sacrifice every year you have to deal with. It reminds you every year of what you, what you, what you have done the year before. And then chapter 10 and verses 10 through 14. It says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now that verse there has caused some confusion in verse 14 perfected forever those who are being sanctified, as if sanctification is progressive in this sense, that, well, I used to lie ten times a day. When I became a Christian, I started lying nine, then eight, then seven, then six, and all of a sudden, eventually, I, I lied none. But the word being sanctified is just one word there, and it means they're presently sanctified. That's all it means, that they're presently sanctified. Okay. Now, of course, if you sin... As a Christian, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and you can come back to him confessing and cleansing again. But that's not what this is promoting here. It's not what it's even referring to. Simply saying that Christ's sacrifice was enough, that one-time sacrifice was enough to cover all sins, to cleanse from all sins, as long as you're one of those ones who are sanctified currently. Okay? So you're only perfect in God's sight if you are currently sanctified. If you are currently set apart. If you are currently living holy. Only then are you perfect in God's eyes. So verse 14 of uh, chapter 10 is saying. So there is a one time sacrifice. Not many times sacrifice. Not only that. Christ is the minister of the true tabernacle. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to go one, verses 1 through 5. You know the, the, the temple that. The tabernacle that was on earth. Was a picture or a copy of the, the temple, the tabernacle that was in heaven. That's what verses 1 through 5 talks about. Now this is the main point of things we're saying. We have such a high priest, who is here at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one 
also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, talking about Jesus, has attained a more excellent ministry, as much as he is also a meter of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So we have the, the earthly tabernacle, where sacrifices are offered according to the law. And to be a high priest of the Mosaic law, of the earthly tabernacle, you must be of the tribe of Levi. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. There's never been a high priest in the tribe of Judah. But that wasn't required in the high priesthood of Melchizedek. And he served in the heavenly tabernacle, the true tabernacle, the one which the earthly one was a copy, a shadow, or a picture of. Just like all the Old Testament shadows we saw, we looked at the first couple of teachings on this, this foundation, were pictures of Christ, who is to come. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. So, the Gospels don't talk about this very much. There's the book of Acts, but Hebrews is going deeper into this, talking about how Christ offered his own blood in the heavenlies, on the true tabernacle, on the heavenly tabernacle, and once for all having obtained eternal redemption with his own blood. Not with the blood of animals or bulls or goats. And then Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, what was the high priest in the Old Testament doing? There was the holy place, the tabernacle, and then there was the holy of holies, the inner tabernacle, where only the high priest can go how many times a year? One time a year. Not without blood. He had the incense there. And whose presence was he going into when he went there? The presence of God. The glory of God which dwelt between the angels, which is really a picture of heaven, because who, who dwells around his throne in heaven? Go read Isaiah 6, you'll learn all about it. So, But he appears in the actual presence of God for us, before God himself. And so Christ is the minister of the true tabernacle, not the shadow tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, the tabernacle made with the hands of men. And we see the next point is that animal, we already read this, but animal blood, animal life could not take away sins could not forgive or make the people perfect. You see this in Hebrews 10, 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They were shadows of Christ who was to come. It was meant to point to Christ, whose blood can take away sins. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Who could forgive, who could cleanse, who could purge, who could redeem, who could forgive. As Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, there is no remission. There's no putting aside. And so we see that the, the, the new covenant is required because it's a better priesthood, a better high priest, 
It's an eternal priesthood. This priesthood received tithes from Abraham and from the Levites indirectly because they were in the loins of Abraham. This high priest continued forever. His priesthood did not end with his death. It was a one-time sacrifice, not, multiple, not every day or once a year. It was a one-time sacrifice. He's a minister of the true tabernacle. His blood actually can take away sins and make people perfect. And lastly, now we can all enter the Holy of Holies, Hebrews 10, 19-20. Therefore, brethren, having, the bol- having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, entering the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we access to the presence of God directly through the veil. You know, the old veil was actual veil. And only one person going there once a year. But now we all have access to the presence of God through the veil, which is Christ's body. He gives us that access. And so the, the new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. Obviously, if it was good enough, it wouldn't have been replaced. And if you really want to learn more about it, I would encourage you to start in Hebrews chapter 5 and read through the end of Hebrews chapter 10. They'll give you a better understanding of the Old Testament what the new covenant is, and how to understand these things better. So we kind of jumped around a little bit with that, but try to break it down to categories for you to understand why it's better, what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so just to review real quick uh, the teaching for today. Uh, purge means to be cleansed, purged. Catharismos, cleansing from inward pollution. Uh, Catharizo is translated as purify and cleanse. It means to cleanse and purify of sin, to declare clean, to make clean. Uh, Katara, which is the word curse, means a curse offering or becoming a curse on our behalf. We see that the curse that Christ became was figurative. It was not literal because he was not guilty of any crimes. He had not committed any sins. He wasn't deserving of death. He wasn't literally a curse of God. He wasn't literally put to death and then hung on a tree. The whole scenario was figurative, but it relates in a lot of ways. And we saw that. That he died of a broken heart while he was on the cross. The cross was not even the cause of his death. But he was treated as if he had committed crimes worthy of death, as if he was guilty, as if he was literally cursed by God. He died out in the open as if he was on a tree like an Old Testament all as a substitute for those who had actually committed crimes worthy of death, literally accursed by God and guilty. Okay, so this is the New Testament doctrine of the atonement. Um, with all the facts before you now, you can decide for yourself uh, what it actually teaches. What the New Testament actually teaches regarding the atonement. What the Old Testament actually teaches regarding the atonement. And um, next week, we're going to look at some different theories of the atonement. And theories oftentimes, unfortunately, add man's words to it. They often either say too much or don't say enough. And it's oftentimes man trying to figure out 
why this, why that. Well, God doesn't always answer the why in Scripture. You know, we've seen in Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and God's given it as an atonement for your souls. Okay? But it's not a literal uh, substitution. It's not a literal exact payment of the penalty. It's, it's a sufficient substitute in God's eyes, though. Now, why, why did God choose to, to make it this way? Why did God say, well, um, in order for you to be forgiven of your sins, um, you know, I'm going to have to have a blood sacrifice? Why? What if God never tells you why? Is that okay? I mean, maybe God doesn't tell us why. And oftentimes, these theories we're going to talk about next week, they try to delve into the why. And you'll see, as I've seen from studying it the last seven or eight years, studying this in depth, these different theories, and saying, well, do I hold to this one or should I hold to this one? Or Just, you know, how they're actually... I mean, I read this one book and they told me recently, and this guy makes a lot of good points. And this last point he makes, which is the whole crux of the theory, there's not one scripture in that whole section. You know, so when, when, when the scripture's silent, we need to be silent. And just speak what the scriptures speak. And I, I think another reason why people go to theories, they, they try to look for some human example. That's a perfect human example that describes the atonement. And let's face it, there is no perfect human example for the atonement. Every human example you give is going to miss some kind of element, unfortunately. But next week we'll go through uh, the three major doctors uh, of theories of atonement, which is ransom, also called Christus Victor, and then we have moral government and penal substitution. They all have little offshoots. That's the three main ones. Okay, but this week, with some questions you may have or objections or things you want to add. Okay, Brother John. Yeah, in the um, in modern Christianity, many people support the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and mm-hmm. all that that goes with that and making donations to all that stuff. And if, to get to the point where they're uh, making sacrifices again, mm-hmm. Uh, the blood of bulls and bulls, and my question is that if Christians understand this proper view of the atonement, and just what Scripture says about that one fact that the blood of bulls and bulls does not atone for sin, why are we seeking, I'm not saying we, yeah. but like Christians. Christians in general, seeking to support that endeavor, but obviously it's not required anymore, it's been done away with, mm-hmm. uh, so it's kind of a rhetorical question to you if you yeah, I, I think what I've noticed from people like that is, is generally usually pre-tribbers who are all for that because they're involved in Zionism, and which means that the nation of Israel is still God's chosen nation. They are to some degree, but not the same way they were before. And um, the other issue is that they're so caught up in prophecy and these different books that are out there that they're just almost excited about it. Um, now, it's a fact of the matter. The new te- temple is going to be built. There will be sacrifices offered. That's the fulfillment of Scripture. The Scripture never approves of it. It never uh, says it's a good thing. And obviously it's not because uh, it was destroyed back in 8070 for good reason. And God, a lot of that happened for good reason. So obviously we we don't look forward to it in a sense that we're joyous about it. We look forward to it in a sense that we're it's one of the signs that God gives us uh, to look for Christ's coming. That that must be built for the abomination of desolation to happen, and uh, the Jews, I mean, they're just trying to be consistent with their their doctrine. 
I mean, if you read, Michael Brown has a book where he goes through a lot of objections that that uh, Jewish people give to why they don't have a temple anymore. Well, it's just repentance is all that's needed now. It's just prayer is all that's needed. You know, you know, we we are the suffering servant. All these different things they say about themselves, and a lot of them aren't willing to submit to that because they know that's not true. They know they need a temple. They know they need sacrifices, just like the Old Testament law says. And um, so it is a, is a is a matter of fact. It's going to happen. I don't rejoice in the fact that these things are not, are not going to be accepted by God. These sacrifices are not going to be accepted by God because the final sacrifice has been made. But I rejoice in the fact that it's a sign that Christ is almost back. He's almost here. And we're getting closer. And I say Maranatha. I look for him to come back. Yes. Yes. Okay, um, did I understand you to say that Christ did not show up physically to Abraham? No. What, what I'm, it's a Christophany. But he, he, when we're talking about Christ, Christophanies are a pre-incarnate version of Christ. Okay, so what I mean by that is he didn't remain in the flesh. Once he came in the flesh to the Virgin Mary, he remained in the flesh. He's still in the flesh now. Oh yeah, he was in the flesh. I mean, just just not like a permanent state. That That's why I said he had no father, he had no mother. That's why I can say that. He had no beginning of days, no end of life. Because I was referring to Jesus. Yeah, just like he did when he uh, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He came with the two angels. The same situation, the same Christophany there. And then, uh, I know I've asked you this question before because it always uh, puzzles me. And, and, uh, there are many verses in Hebrews that, that, that uh, refute the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Yep. And the people that support that uh, view will say, well, They'll apply dispensational views to Hebrews. Well, it wasn't written to the modern church, it's only written to Jews. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the case, then the point I would make is then none of the rest of it, all of this atonement uh, information mm-hmm. that we would learn today does not apply to them either. Right? It, was, it was primarily written, written to Jewish Christians. Right. I mean, obviously, I mean, how could he say Hebrews 6 4 through 6 or Hebrews 10 26? If it wasn't written to those who actually were believing and following Christ, and considering going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which, according to Hebrews ten twenty six, they'd have no more sacrifice for sins, uh, because Christ is the sacrifice for sins, and going back to the Old Testament sacrifice is not really a sacrifice for sins any longer. As soon as Christ died on the cross, he was the was the death of the testator, and he begins the new covenant. But yeah, they all, people who do that, you have to ask them, why are you saying that there's a difference between what God requires of a Jewish Christian and of a non-Jewish Christian? Where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say that God re, that Jewish Christians can lose their salvation, but Gentile Christians can't? Where are you getting that from? I thought God was no respecter of persons. I thought God dealt with everyone the same way. When it comes to that, to that, so they, you know, unless there's a a, a lack of knowledge from someone, because God judges according to knowledge, then it might be a little bit different. But when it comes to you know whether you can depart from the faith or not, I mean, scriptures is very clear. Unless we can play their game, if they want to do that, let's just go to Paul's writings. I mean, we can prove it from Paul's writings if we have to. You know, besides Hebrews, the other writings of Paul, which are written to Gentiles, and we can prove it from there too. So I mean, I can't think of one epistle that doesn't address it to some degree that you can depart from the faith. And gives a warning of departing from the faith. 
And it seems like a useless warning if it can't happen. Josh. Um, I was wondering what the verse was for uh, the eight point you gave on the new covenant. Okay. That we can all enter the Holy of Holies? Yeah. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Well, have been is there's a, there's a past past sanctification obviously when you get saved that's I mean sanctified by faith, but all, obviously you have to continue to walk in that. So there's a, a present sanctification, and in in uh, verse fourteen, sanctification there is in the present passive, which means it was done to you, but it's a present state. And so Christ sanctifies you. Of course, something that you must do. We see it from Acts fifteen. You must have faith, and so there's a present sanctification it's referring to, and those are only ones who'll be perfected forever. Those who are currently sanctified. So if you depart from being currently sanctified, you're not part of that group that's perfected forever. But right, it's not. It's not even referring. All it's simply saying here is that if you read from verse 11, or even from verse 10, that Christ only had to offer Himself once, and that was good enough. It wasn't a continual offering like the high, other high priest would do every single year, every single day for for sins. It was one time was enough to cover all sins. To forgive all sins. That's I think that's the point verse fourteen is making. Okay, so it's currently sanctified, not currently being sanctified. No, it's currently sanctified. It's a present sanctified. present state that you're in, right. that you're sanctified. Because there's scripture that talks about our sanctification that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality and, and Well that that verse says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you to possess his own vessel and sanctification, honor. So all that's, that's present too. That you know how to do that. That you're constantly walking. Now, if I choose tomorrow to go sin, obviously I'm not walking in sanctification any longer. So sanctification is only progressive, or a something that you that you're continuing in in this sense that you get more knowledge. Now you have more to be accountable to. So if God reveals something, He says, Kerrigan Skelly, you need to go to Ireland next year. And you need to move there permanently. And I, if I receive that knowledge, and I know it's God telling me that, and I say, no. Now I'm not walking in sanctification any longer. And so as, these, as new knowledge comes, I must walk in that knowledge in order to continue in sanctification. So sanctification is not progressive in this sense, like most professing Christians try to say, that, listen, man, it's the process. You know, I, you know I'm still going to sin every single day, but... Eventually, down the road, I'll give up this sin, and then I'll give up that sin, and I'll give up this sin. And these are all things they're already aware of, but they're refusing to give them up. Not a process in that sense, but a process. Would it be a process in the sense of knowledge? You right. Getting more knowledge of God's more to be accountable to. Will in your life, right. and you're walking in that, yeah. in that yeah. sense. Because there is an ultimate sanctification as well. Right, when you're out of the presence of sin, yeah. yep. no temptation any longer. Yeah, when you're in, when you're in the kingdom of God, there's no more sin. 
And even that's not a loss of free will. It's just simply a, a loss of temptation and, and you know, God's given you a, 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 bo- a better body, all those kind of things. But it's not a matter, a matter even then of losing free will. Yeah. So, or, I mean, if you're going to be consistent, if you can sin every single day and still be sanctified in God's eyes, then why couldn't you sin in heaven and still be sanctified in God's eyes? Yeah. Being consistent with it. So. Okay. Anybody else?